0: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 170 is Bob Mold. He started performing in Minneapolis in the early '80s with Husker Du, with co-frontman Grant Hart. After six albums with them, he went solo in the late '80s, released two albums, then formed Sugar. You're right now hearing their big single, "If I Can't Change Your Mind," from Copper Blue, 1992. Broke that out after two albums and an EP in 1995. Has since put out 11 albums, plus a couple dance projects. We're going to discuss Forecast of Rain from his last full album, Blue Hearts 2020. Then I Don't Know You Anymore from 2014's Beauty and Ruin. And look back to J.C. Auto by Sugar from the EP Beaster, nineteen ninety-three. And look way back to In a Free Land by Husker Du, a nineteen eighty-two single remixed for their two thousand seventeen compilation Savage Young Du. And we'll conclude by listening to the Ocean World Cafe session from a brand new acoustic EP, The Ocean. Get more information at BobMold.com. Get more about this podcast at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you'd like to support the effort, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. You can get my show notes with lyrics and structure breakdowns of all the songs. Finally, if you enjoy this show, please leave a nice rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I will play a little of If I Can't Change Your Mind by Sugar from Copper Blue 1992 to Orient Folks, although... There are three distinct things I could have used to orient folks because, you know, of course, the Who's Do thing that you've talked about a lot. I see something I learned today actually has, at least on Spotify, more downloads than If I Can't Change Your Mind, even though I'm sure it was not as big a hit at the time. And See A Little Light from your first solo album has almost that many. So I could have played any of those equally well. You well established yourself in at least three different distinct sounds before we even got going here.
1: That's great. I was going to say I was going to add a couple that I think it may surpass any of those, like the Daily Show theme.
0: Oh, of course, yes, <laughs> yes.
1: Statistically, that hits more eardrums per day. But yeah, those are all good
0: too. Well, let's get quickly to the newest stuff or the next to newest stuff. I'll say because I know you sort of paused for the pandemic, and the most recent thing that we'll hear something from at the very end is sort of a live acoustic version. But your last full proper album. Blue Hearts 2020, Forecast of Rain was the short tune that I picked that I assumed was one that you were leading toward. It seems to have the most downloads. Do you want to give folks a a brief intro of that before we hear it?
1: I think I wrote the music for that back maybe like 2018, 2019, when I was -hmm. still splitting time between San Francisco and Berlin, Germany. And then the words, they appeared out of nowhere, as words often do. And, you know, sort of a quick look at the hypocrisy of certain religious folks, I guess mostly the American evangelicals who in the 80s made my life tough. And from 2016 until now, have certainly made all of our lives a little bit tougher. Just sort of using some real simple Imagery in the words, you know, just asking, do all of these wonderful thoughts and prayers apply to everyone or is it just to you and your folks or the folks that you discriminate against or you try to suppress? you know, just throwing those ideas out there as a former Catholic, I just thought I would ask those questions.
0: to orient folks about this Blue Hearts album, the general shape of the career. We've got those points that I mentioned at the beginning. And then, you know, I know a couple more after Sugar broke up. We have a couple more sort of rock albums to the point of the last Dog and Pony show in the 90s that was supposed to be the end of that because you were too old for that stuff. But now that was recanted after an album of dance music. We've now had a very steady wonderful stream of albums where does this one exactly lie in the scope of the last five or so
1: blue hearts is the fifth album made with jason arduce on bass and john worster on drums all five records have been on merge records in the u.s it's been a heck of a decade with those five records blue hearts specifically it was sort of a deja vu all over again kind of feeling I was having. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned getting started with Husker Du in 1979 and being in a hardcore punk band and being somewhat political at the beginning and then moving more towards personal songs and being not closeted but not an out gay young man. You know, the 80s were a mess. They were really tough. They were incredibly hard on... A lot of my friends and a lot of people who did not survive the 80s, you know, we had a government, you know, the Reagan years were not good for me and my folks. And as 2016 turned into 2019, everything started feeling like 1982 again. Uh, That was the inspiration for Blue Hearts. It was a return back to protests, urging others to protest, touching on politics, touching on religion, touching on personal conflict. You know, I guess in my mind, I was making a sort of in the spirit of the records I made with Husker Du, where you're constantly writing, constantly reacting to the world. You know, as a young person with all kinds of conflict, I just went back and tried to look at those times quickly, not not having to dwell on it too much, but just thinking about the limited tools I had at that time to make music. Mm -hmm. Looking at the environment, you know, living in a van, basically, or sleeping on people's floors and, you know, having the good fortune of making some work that resonated with people and still does, and that's the touchstone, I guess, for Blue Hearts.
0: Now, with this song in particular, what's your thought on sort of how you're combining the stance you're taking in the lyrics, all right? So it's sort of a prayer, but it's not like little piano, it's a prayer. It's a grandiose prayer, passive-aggressive prayer that then goes into your normal, the I see your sheep, their strength, you know, this big fat guitar, like there's an actual sort of ecstasy there. How does those sorts of moods that in the verse, in the chorus, there combine combined with the message you're putting forth as far as you're concerned.
1: You know, it starts with a lot of questioning in the verses. And then when it gets to the first big chorus, it's, you know, more accusatory, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I try to settle it back down a little bit for the second verse, but it didn't settle down completely. And then again, the you know, another big chorus. And then, some beautiful, beautiful church organ to take us out to whatever the, the next song was on the album, which I think might be When You Left. But I think that motif that I just described is something that comes from the 80s, but also those dynamics, I played with those a lot with Workbook, the first solo album in 1989. I mean, it's just pretty much worked in the grooves I know you know, and trying to stay reactive to what's happening.
0: Well, and speaking of the actual grooves, I mean, even the rhythm of the lyrics, so high pon your holy throat, like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's only because everything under it, you don't have a, a funky drum there, it's thundering rock, but then you can actually do this sort of R&B thing with your voice and have it add a little, you know, that it's not merely grandiose. Oh,
1: thanks. That's a great description. I, I would add, you know, semi sneering on top of it.
0: <laughs> Any thoughts about just how you weave together the wall of sound here. So having the 12-string acoustic in the background and cymbal heavy, and is the bass really just playing half notes there, not adding any rhythm? Is that what I'm hearing
1: Jason's staying with John's kick pattern, and he is carrying a lot of the chord movement when it goes from the descending Uh high upon your holy throne. You know, he's just walking down from a one through a major three through a one through a major three. It's got a McCartney feel to it, I suppose, when you throw the major three in that's the function of the bass on that song the architecture of it you know started with guitar it started with guitar in a drop tuning it got recorded with conventional tuning so it was written on guitar then all of the synthetic or keyboard elements got added later i think the way that they build from the first verse and then the second verse they have a similar feel but there's a bigger density to it a lot of that is you know that kind of arranging is you know, when I think about that, when I think about all the all the time I spent DJing and listening to electronic music and how one builds the story throughout a song with electronic components.
0: Well, that's a really great synth sound. I thought it was strings when it started, but then it obviously has portamento somewhere in the middle so that it's clearly a patch of some sort. Are you just one-handing that yourself?
1: On the previous record, Sunshine Rock, I had done a lot of string arrangements and used a, an orchestra from Prague to record the Prague Czech Republic. So this time again, down and dirty, didn't have time to get an orchestra together. So grab grabbed that old, you know, that Matrix 1000 sort of that PBS synth sounds that we remember from our childhood.
0: Okay. So it seemed to me that it had progressed significantly since I remember in Beaster that you had a track which, you know, had this elaborate one-handed synth thing that like seemed sacrilegious at the time you know just compared to the rest of the but here you know it melts very nicely into the mix
1: everything sits pretty well in that mix there's a lot going on and again with trying to make a quicker record typically if i was you know spending a lot of time mixing an album i might spend a day pushing different parts around but that one was pretty much get things that sound right and and sort of stuff them all together and not sweat the technical part too much
0: So am I reading the message right that you're starting off with this, you folks are so intolerant, and then ends with environmental catastrophism, as in, you're going to be punished by your willful ignorance by global warming, killing everybody, something like, is that the gist?
1: I was just probably having some kind of like, let's call the God of Thunder on this one. Uh That was my assumption with the characters, like when the character becomes more accusatory, I had to double in size and scope, so...
0: Yes, that starts out as praying and then moves on to, I am the thunder. What, 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 that's
1: right. Yeah, I'm the, yep, the thunder, I'm the vapor. Yeah, all the, all the natural elements that
0: can't be stopped. I'm the sun, you are the moon, play me. What, what is Neil Diamond lyric or something is coming to mind here?
1: Until they come up with other names for these celestial objects. That, that's all we got to work with.
0: There's probably a poetic name for putting the, the forces of nature in first person. That This has probably been done for hundreds of years. I don't know what exactly precedent to call in here, but it (laughs) certainly works well with this divine calling here that the whole song has. Let's get a second song out there going back a little bit. I chosen from beauty and ruin 2014. I don't know you anymore. So this is sort of a classic sugar esque, also pretty short. This one at least hits almost three minutes, whereas the last one was two and a half. Do you have any words about where you were at, at this point and this song before we hear it?
1: Pop song. I think it sits number three on the album, so it was intentionally put there because I typically put what I think will be a single in the number three spot because that's what pop groups did in the '60s. It's a you know song that's got cute metaphors, you know, the whole tape rewinds, and erases, you know, it's the idea of, of letting go of a relationship or letting go of the memory of something or someone, you know, just using fun, you know, like little studio allegory. The tape rewinds inside my head, shedding, and it can't be saved. It could be an answering machine too, you know, an old-fashioned answering machine way back when we had analog recording devices as our primary means of leaving messages. So, you know, I think structurally, we're looking for like an inside baseball thing. After the solo and the bridge and the quick drop, and then we have, I think, three and a half choruses out. I guess in my mind, the way that I was trying to stack everything would be akin to "Windy" by the association. That's a 60s pop song. If anybody goes back and listens to the long fade on that, they'll probably recognize the palette, the way things enter and exit. When I'm putting stuff together, one of my main touchstones is all of my 60s pop, you know, mostly my 45s that I still have. And when in doubt for an arrangement thing or when I look for inspiration, I'll just start playing some singles and all of a sudden a crazy sound will jump out of somebody else's work and I'll go, aha. I bet I could do something similar to that.
0: So this has your classic fat guitar. How many guitars are you overdubbing to make the beginning of the song there? Is that really just one, or is it mixed in a clever way so that the bass notes of the guitar are spread wider than the treble, or how, how are you actually recording that?
1: It's basically two parts. It's a rhythm part the lead part. The lead part is the melody that you recognize. The other part is the capo two, first first position cowboy chords through a number of amplifiers that we would create a big wide stereo spread with those.
0: That's what I'm hearing, that the chimed notes at the top, this is even apart from obviously a little melody that's going on there in a second guitar, but you seem to have a trick where you know it almost sounds like there's a second bass, like the bass is actually holding down its part, but then your low strings are filling up that stereo space in a way that's distinctly different from the high chimey notes. And yeah, so putting that through multiple amps and processing it like that, that would make sense. Yep,
1: that's the trick. I think with those, it's probably, that might have been like an old Park head through a 412. It would have been a Blackstar Artisan 100 through a 412 cab, both close mic'd a couple different ways, and then like an 87 you know, Neumann U87 out in the room, and then uh, just creating a stereo track with all
0: of that. And then, how are you deciding sort of how prominent that little melody should be? Like, I was thinking it actually came in on the second or third measure, but it's right there at the beginning. It just takes a minute to focus on it because it's not mixed that high, just right at the beginning. It's not like you're cranking it like this is the lead part. It's like it just blends nicely into the wash.
1: I would call that the signature. So that's what I call that kind of part. Is just, That's the signature riff that will come back at you a couple different times throughout the song. You know, I think in that song, I may have held the return of it until the triple chorus, so that it, it's like a recollection piece at that point, setting a signature with that sound. And then I think the other guitar, the cowboy chord thing, has like a quick, snappy, like a 7-to-1 kind of thing on the last chord every two bars. Do-do-do! you know, which is like another sub-signature.
0: How much are you directing the drummer in terms of what to fill the space with? So I hear, you know, in a thousand pieces of my heart, the steady thing is an open hi-hat, or at least, you know, partially open hi-hat, as opposed to, let's open it wide and crash on every quarter or something like that. Is that just something you're feeling out with the live band as you're going to see what it needs?
1: Wide open hats and rides and crashes on choruses, tamp it down on verses so they can get some legibility, but not too much legibility for the vocals. And that was recorded in 2013. And it seems now when I listen to music in 2022, everybody forgot to bring their cymbals to the recorded session. <laughs> it definitely sounds like it's from 2014 with all of that. You know, there's a lot of cymbal energy. You know, John, Jason and then mm-hmm. I, the three of us have played together for many years now. And I think we all grew up generally in the same musical neighborhood. These are things we don't even have to talk about. I mean, John sort of knows, oh, it's the chorus works. This is the excitement. This is the heat. This is when I get to heat up the brass.
0: You know, I forgot to mention, I think in Forecast of Rain, I noticed as we're finishing up the verse, there's some eighth note percussion thing. I mean, it could just be him playing hi-hat or something, but it sounded like overdubbed percussion, like you had some second thoughts you really just sort of leave it to a single drummer or do you at least sometimes go in there, like, you know, just like with the guitars, we need to layer on some more stuff.
2: Oh,
1: percussion day is always a day. That's like, that's up there with birthday's (laughs) name. Percussion day is, uh, you know, I'm never, never too far away from that tambourine, (laughs) never too far away from those shakers and At electrical audio in Chicago, they have a hell of a percussion locker. And when it's percussion day, I just say, How about it, John?
0: Okay. I just didn't know if there was still some sort of purist streak left in you of like, this has got to sound as much as possible just like a three piece. And if I need to put on a second guitar just to thicken it up, that's fine. But otherwise or a a lead synth line or or a strings or something, but it sounds like no, you've done enough of these albums that (laughs) anything like that has gone out the window long ago. No, I build a brick wall and add lots of more. no problems with that. Looking at the structure here, with the way you're structuring this, it sounds like you're taking pretty directly 60s influences, as opposed to the next song that we'll bring up from J.C. Otto. Sounds like it has about five distinct sections in here. This one is just a nice classical, very short bridge. Everything goes pretty much directly in everything else, except for the having a little space for the solo. Yeah, it's
1: what signature verse, pre, chorus, verse, pre, chorus, bridge solo verse solo then a bridge then a quick drop then three and a half outs yeah that's the structure for that one it couldn't be more 1966
0: could it so i guess in the bridge here you add this are you using an octave on the lead guitar something that is doubling the vocal line or at least enhancing it seems like that's one of your signature tricks is have an extra fat treble guitar come in to make the vocal stronger
2: Yeah, I
1: use that trick a lot. A lot of that is octave moves on the guitar. Typically an octave built on the A and G strings, what I call the claw position. So,
0: Well, and that's going to sound better than uh Weasley. I don't know, maybe Octaverse pedals sound better now. But the one that I had always has just a weird fake synth sound to it when you add a, an upper or a lower.
1: I agree completely. The reason I tend to stay away from those now is They glitch as you're moving around. Sometimes they don't read the note quite right. And I mean, I'm a pretty good rhythm player and a pretty average, at best, lead player. So it would just start glitching out. My timing as a lead guitarist is nowhere near what it is as a rhythm guitarist. So I try to keep my lines simple.
0: Well, I guess at this point, you wouldn't actually do it with a pedal anyway. I know in songs that I'm, when I'm trying to create a wall of sound like this, I have sometimes like, well, let's take the guitar track and artificially generate an octave lower than it. And put that low in the mix just as something to be rumbly and take up space. Are you using
1: that kind of trickery as well? I know what you mean, and that's a good way to get that. I tend to just stick to doing it with octaves. I mean, you know, I could always grab like a baritone guitar if I wanted to get that kind of somewhere between the low guitar register and the and the low bass register. The coronado, I think, is the fender model that does that. Almost like a guitar bass hybrid. I would use something like that. You know, I'll always pull up a synth. those tend to add the best kind of density because you're using a completely new source and you're avoiding a lot of the phase cancellation that you might get otherwise.
0: You know, if you're layering guitars and things, is there a lot of like sort of unnatural things that you have to do with the EQ just to keep them out of the way of each other? Your vocal pokes through very, very well. I was just listening to the uh, Who's Could Do podcast that came out a few years ago and you were saying how those major labels, they were pushing, like, can you make the vocals more present? But it seems like starting with Sugar, the vocals are more present. Like you can pretty much hear every word on every song. So you seem to be okay with that.
1: Even with Workbook, vocals were uh-huh. up the most. Black Sheets, they went back down. Sugar, they came and went, depending on whether it was a pop song or a pile driver song. I tend to like to move the vocals back a little bit. Sometimes for me, when the vocals are really present, the band track suffers for it. And I don't mean like suffer like, oh, that's suffering, but it just sounds a little less powerful. Sure. Trying to dig space out for vocals with the amount of guitar miking and amps and layering that I occasionally get into, you know, I have to be really mindful of phase. Having said that, sometimes when, you know, when I put up a couple of guitar tracks and they sound like a mess, all of a sudden, As you know, as a musician, you start getting all of those ghost notes and overtones and things that you can't even imagine. You know, I mean, somebody like Kevin Shields is a master with that. It's just the way that different harmonics interact. A lot of times I'm like, I don't care if it's in phase or out of phase. People are going to listen to it the way they listen to it. And this cacophony and all of these magical notes that I did not write that are now like front and center for me. That's the way I'd like to hear it for the rest of time. So I wish I could say there's like a specific roadmap for everything, but I think I'm conveying sort of how I work with this stuff.
0: What's your philosophy on reverb? It seems like you have enough miking and reverb on the individual guitars and things that like you don't necessarily need to add, say, reverb to the whole mix or have certainly your vocal is not typically drenched, though. That is at least one way that I've heard of like, how do you get a voice to sit with a giant wall of guitar sound? Well, reverb the crap out of it.
1: I tend to lean more on temporal delays that have regeneration. I mean, I love reverb. Don't get me wrong. I mean, every studio should have an EMT, you know, a good plate reverb and a mechanical plate reverb. And I'll use a touch of it on voice, but not in the, you know, like a Roy Orbison way or like a surf guitar way. Or I'm not real big on super obvious reverb unless I'm trying to create. A big distance between the narrator and, and the music. And you know, as I said, I, I typically don't hang vocals that far out like that.
0: So. Well, and what's your take on backing vocals that you got nice sixties ish, but not overdone? I would be tempted on this chorus, you know, with the ahs, you know, to layer four harmonies on, on it or something and make it a little more beach boys. But you seem to have stuck to kind of the roughly the hoosker the rule book in terms of not fattening it up too much, not sweetening up crazily.
1: You know, it's with each cycle, there's an additional call and answer that gets added as opposed to stacking harmonies directly on top of each other. Typically get a good lead vocal, get a couple different background vocal options, and then just keep adding more spice as the song tails out. That's pretty much my MO. Traditionally, I have done a lot of the backgrounds myself, but you know, having Jason Narducci, who's got such a wonderful voice that complements Everything that we're doing, I now just step back and like, Jason, what are you here? and, You know, go throw some stuff around, you know, sort of like percussion day, but background vocal day.
0: <laughs> I mean, is there a sense that the background vocals have to have, I don't know, I don't hear like knowing Jason's lead vocals, I don't necessarily hear those jumping out as, you know, in the way that Grant as a separate lead vocal personality in the band, like everything since then seems to have been more the character of the lead vocal is you can drench more in reverb and it's going to be sort of a paler version of the lead or something like that.
1: With Jason, sometimes they sit back a little bit. Sometimes answer. I think it really depends on what the band is doing and how much space there is and how important, you know, having that additional character. Well, like a song that I would call up as like complete madness that works great is American crisis off of blue hearts where you know i wrote the words i showed him jason i said are you down with these words and he's like fuck yeah so i just went in and did eight lead vocals and cut a couple main ones together out of that you know like most of take five and part of take six a little bit of seven right there to correct you know that part where i screamed too hard and then you know i would look at jason just go he'd be like what do i do I said, just go do do what you do And we'll just get a bunch of them and we'll we'll either comp it together or we'll just, in the case of American Crisis, he and I just kept singing more and more and more. And then we just kept layering them on top of each other. So it had that big, big density, sort of like J.C. Otto from Beaster when you mentioned that earlier.
0: Let's get that out there, just to have another completely different band. And this is going to be over six minutes long, so we get to see the other end of your uh, arranging spectrum. Yeah, so this is Beaster, 1993, but these were just recorded at the same time as Copper Blue, right? As your main album that was just sort of delayed?
1: Yeah, we recorded 30 songs, I believe. I brought in 30, and we finished 10 for Copper Blue, 6 for Beaster, and there was a lot of really excellent B-sides as well. But yeah, that was like the the yin and yang kind of thing. And Beaster came out so quick because Copper Blue was having such great success. I I convinced Alan McGee. I said, come on, Alan, I'm doing the fucking Beatles every six months. Come
0: on. Well, yes, I remember being in maybe a Borders. This was long enough ago that that still existed and being very surprised at this coming out and paying the crazy Borders price for that. Can you say something about JC Otto in particular? So this is definitely the Yang. This is definitely one of the darker ones even on this album.
1: Yeah, J.C. Otto shorthand for Jesus Christ autobiography, Get on the Cross and Yell kind of song, you know. The whole beaster motif is inflicting a lot of stuff onto myself. You know, a lot of my own confusion, concerns, just you know, amplifying them and turning them inward. And then when I do that, this is what sometimes it sounds like in my head.
0: Yeah, any thought about this intro? This is a long time now. If you don't remember some of these details, that's fine. But
1: Oh, no, I remember this one well because this was 1993. I was, the sugar records were recorded for Ryko Disc, And I remember when they were getting ready to campaign Beaster and we were getting ready to tour, they wanted to pull JC Otto as a single. And somebody clipped the and kick off of the front. So when I heard like the promo CD, I was like, somebody left out the and kick because it's and bop, 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 and bop, 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 bop. And I was like, I don't think we can use these.
0: It is actually there on the Beaster version. It is restored. I see. And then when you have the bass and the lead come in, your lead is just sort of suspended in the air there. I would sort of expect there to be a fat rhythm guitar or something filling it out. But instead, it's just out ah, nah, nah, with the bass. So did you sort of dictate the bass riff on that? Do you remember? You're bending up, he's bending down.
1: The Sugar Records were tightly orchestrated before the three of us got together. The demos were very orchestrated and very true to the writing demos, so... That move was in place.
0: So uh, listening, there's a, now a live version of this on the Copper Blue Extended, seeing which things David is actually singing backup for. you know, A lot of the backups are sort of, they come in later in the song live than they do here, and the fact that he actually takes the I know, I know, I know repeated thing, which seemed to me like the hook. So on the studio version, you're singing that, right?
1: I'm singing
0: everything on that record.
1: Mm. And a lot of times when we would take songs like J.C. Otto to the stage, it would just be a matter of who needs a breath, who's got breath.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes sense that you're playing pretty busily under there to not have to hold down all those I knows through that section. Structurally, what is going on here? There's a chorus, there's a bridge, there's a chorus. What, at least the way I chart it out, you got your verse, chorus, bridge, chorus two, that I look like Jesus Christ, then back to another verse. What do you consider the chorus here? What I was thinking the bridge happens twice, so that can't be a bridge. Where
1: signature and title meet is the chorus. Gotcha. And that's chorus.
0: Well, you got your, you know, I've done, da, 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 that's the obvious the verse, but then it opens up that when everything seems wrong, I need to look So that you know, that sounds like we're in the chorus here and in fact it ends with the the holiday Which is sort of like okay, here's a tag, but then that's half the musical material in the song. I guess this is one that deserves to be six minutes long. It's not merely that we're like going to have a four minute guitar solo and make it earn its keep that way. There's enough structural material that you needed this, even though it's not super slow.
1: The bridge that gets to holiday, yeah, that was you know just that's like. Verse bridge, verse bridge, chorus, chorus. And then there's an, I think, was there a bridge adaptation somewhere in there? I can't, I haven't played so
0: when there's nothing left, you all the color. That she sprayed upon it. Yep. Passing
1: judgment on my life. You did Yeah. The inside baseball on this one is the parts of it seem over now. You expect a real solution mm-hmm. that spells out poison years, which is the same. That's the callback. That's the prize for that one.
0: You know, you mentioned on the previous song, like, oh, I I think I took part of the fifth take. You seem to have trained your voice so that you don't get hoarse. That (laughs) when I was trying to sing like this in college, I would be hoarse at the end of every goddamn show.
1: It's all I can do to get to the next day at this point. I sing hard. I'm untrained. I've done a lot of damage to my voice. I do the best I can with what I have left. It's a constant struggle with shows it just wear and tear too many years of smoking cigarettes early on
0: i don't know do you get professional assistance in terms of my dedicated person who gives me lemon or whatever you need to do to make your voice actually functional
1: i've gone through a handful of specialists and there will be more to come i'm sure yeah i have a lot of different a lot of different things i do i try not to talk at all when i'm on tour I try, I barely sing maybe 30 seconds at sound check just so they can make sure the mic is going and they can get a touch of EQ and get me up in the monitors and then I just let it rip for 90 to 110 minutes and then I shut up until the next sound check.
0: I think I saw this tour and you you know it seemed even though it's of course hard to make out the vocals in the live setting, at least the way they were running the PAs back then in uh, Austin or whenever I saw it anyway, but I recall like around the same time that I saw a uh, crowded house live and how he on some of his stuff will do the same sort of like really rip it on the, on the album, but somebody like must have whipped him or something. So that live, everything is very nice and well supported and trained. So like this is what has to happen for your voice to actually survive past a certain age. At least that's what I thought, but your voice seems. You know, you sound just as good, I feel like, on the recent records as, as five records ago.
1: Yeah, thanks. No, I appreciate <laughs> that live. But, but touring, the deeper I get into touring, the harder it gets. I'm getting older. If we think of the voice like we think of, oh, the rubber bands that hold the newspaper together. If you didn't change those rubber bands for like 10 years, they will snap. And that's sort of how the voice is. Over time, you know, there's the shape of the muscles, everything changes. And for me, it's a lot of maintenance. Use a lot of herbal teas. You know, I think most people are familiar with this tea called throat coat, which I know a lot of educators use it because they're lecturing all day. It's like a slippery elm bark, I believe. And I started doing this thing. I had a friend in Berlin, a younger singer in like a real big hard rock band. And he would lose his voice occasionally. And he showed me this thing called Wax Box. Do you know of this?
0: It uh, sounds familiar. It's
1: a technique where you use reverse pressure on your voice. Like you'll get a half liter plastic water bottle and you fill it up uh, maybe a third of the way. And then you insert a hose and you shape your vocal cords in your mouth a certain way and you push notes through the hose into the water. And what it does is it's like a reverse. You can sort of imagine it now, right? What it's doing to your vocal cords, it's applying reverse pressure to them. Make a fist and go into it just like that. And feel, feel your voice box when you do it. That's the thing that I do. And I will do that as much as I need to before, right before I go on to try to get the muscles warmed up and responding properly.
0: Well, damn, that's a real innovation. I'm going <laughs>
1: to look that up. LAX, VOX. There's, uh, there's lots of videos online that show the method and the technique and the, and the materials you need to do it. It's, it's pretty simple. Let's just go get some fish tank hose from the hardware store and cut it to a certain length and get a bottle and pull it up with water and just start singing into it. It's sort of like Peter Frampton, but into a water bottle.
0: Now, normally I I only do three discussion songs on these, but some of the ones we picked were very short. So I felt like uh, since you had just gone through this relatively recently, Savage Young Do remixing, remastering the entire very early catalog, I pulled out In a Free Land, the 1982 single. Is, are you okay going back to talk about this briefly? Oh hell yeah. Hell All right. Yeah. I could have picked something a really early songwriting attempt, but this seemed like the first one that had your full-on the guitar sound for which you became famous. Although there's some chorus in there. There, you know, there's some little 80s-ness in there that I kind of wasn't expecting. I don't know. Can you say a little of where you were at with this as a social commentary song, as the progress of that band in 1982 here.
1: We had songs that had pop sensibility you know, early on, even in the incredibly messy dim that is Lay Speed record. There's a lot of nice melody in there as well. You are correct that this is sort of the beginning of, you know, leaning into the Eventide H910 harmonizer, which was a rack-mounted, sort of one of the early harmonizers from the late 70s that was, you know, my first attempts at spreading the guitar a little bit wider in the mix, as opposed to sticking it on one side like the first Ramones album, which I love dearly and learned how to play by copying that record. The lyrical content could not be more timely today. And it's as timely as it was forty years ago. You know, it's a really good, it's a really nice protest song. I think the the sentiment is, is pure and good and The riffs are, you know, those are riffs that I have recycled many times. And sometimes when I listen to other musicians, I hear those riffs in their songs as well. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing.
0: thoughts about the interaction of the band to get this arrangement was this just completely like all worked out in rehearsal no at least at this stage no sort of play fewer notes play any thought about that we learned the
1: music before we knew the vocals we didn't really rehearse a lot with a pa it would just be the three of us in a room learning the music and then we sort of the vocals would reveal themselves like right before recording or during recording Uh, a lot of times didn't really know what songs were you know i mean we sort of had names for them but i didn't know what grants words were about and he didn't know what mine were about in a free land, that was probably like 4 hours at blackberry way which was a studio in minneapolis i would imagine there was some alcohol involved i would imagine everything was first take we probably spent 2 hours setting up 10 minutes recording and a half hour tearing down not much thought behind that
0: <laughs> and the it's the same verse used twice which i'll just Government authorized education. They'll teach you what they think. Want you to, what you want you to think. What you want you to think. Saturation of stars and tripes. And then at least in the version that I have written down is the only freedom worth fighting for is for what you think, which I would never have guessed. That. It seems like there are not that many syllables in what you're singing either time, but you're saying that's accurate.
1: That is accurate. Okay. And I still try to sing all of those syllables like this year when I play the song.
0: <laughs> I forget what my
1: short, I have a shorthand of it that I do some nights. Freedom of fight for what you think. Freedom worth fighting for what you think. Those are the main words. You can cut it down to that if you're out of breath.
0: Does it make it more sloganistic by just having the one verse that we're going to repeat twice and, you know, that's the more the, the punk ethos rather than well, let's use the second verse to develop it or something?
1: Eh, it's just quick and dirty. I didn't even give it that much thought.
0: <laughs> Why bother spending time reading up on things and writing the second verse? <laughs> second verse, same first. You know, it sounds like the government is brainwashing you, but then everybody's an authority in a free land. That This sounds more like ripping on the anti-intellectual. It's a different target than the verse. Don't know what
1: the target was then, but sure sounds like a tweet to me.
0: (laughs) Yes. Everyone's an authority. (laughs) That's our freedom. That's, yes, we're
1: free. It's every night is open mic night. Yeah.
0: How did you see your stance as punk social commentators as compared to what you were hearing in your peers, some of which were, I'm guessing, more straightforwardly, fight the power. This at least has this kind of backhanded, more nihilistic, everybody sucks. Yes, the government is trying to, but I hate anti-intellectualism, too. Something like, just think for yourself. It's a
1: wholesome Midwest approach to nihilism. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> a lot of the bands that we were colleagues, I guess, with at the time, like the Kennedys or MDC or Black Flag or the Dicks, people like that, their politics were fully embedded in almost everything they did, whereas I think you know I think with us I think with Freeland it was just that seemed like a quick missile to sort of throw into the the universe you know a good excuse to burn a flag to get the cover art and that's sort of where it started and ended and, but the beauty of it is again this seems like forty years later it still resonates with me whenever I whenever I call that one up I always have a good time with it.
0: Well, I don't know why the particular sound of that fat guitar with chorus on it should resonate with freedom freedom, but somehow it does. That <laughs> it sounds vaguely patriotic in a, a badass way. This hasn't been appropriated like Born in the USA by any groups you, you don't like, I assume. It's not famous enough for that. No big pharma, no nothing. Well let's I'll send it to Ted Cruz, see if he'll start using it just to that is, I prefer you don't do that.
1: A... Thank you very much. <laughs> you gonna use that as his exit music on the way to Mexico for vacation? <laughs> he oh wait, his song right now is Convoy, right? C.W. McCall. Oh gosh. <sighs> now you now I'm in a mood. We should wrap this up before I say something really unsightly. <laughs>
0: well, let's instead say a few nice things about the ocean, this EP that you put out. The two times I've seen you live are with sugar and then in a solo acoustic tour. It was actually the one, the 2002 one, so you were using the synth backing on some stuff, but not on others.
1: Yeah. The films and tracks. That was so much fun.
0: Yes. But this seems like it's been a long time part of your live routine to at least do some, just you and a 12 string thing, right? That goes pretty far back.
1: Well, let me see. When was the first solo acoustic shows? We've been in 1989 uh, as part of the workbook campaign. I think the first shows I did like that were at McCabe's guitar shop in Santa Monica, California. I enjoyed doing those, and then after I left Virgin Records in '91, I did a pretty much an entire year of solo acoustic and electric touring. So it's a format that I go back to. For instance, this year where John and Jason are, you know, working on Superchunk touring, and John is working on Mountain Goats touring, and I'd like to keep touring so I can tour solo, which is a good way to keep campaigning the record and just feel like a productive person.
0: Well, and actually make a profit. I recall reading you saying that several times, that that was the main reason that you fired the first Husker band is their hotel rooms were too nice, that we're not making a profit on the tours.
1: No fault of theirs. <laughs> I would, lay, I would I would lay that squarely on my inability to manage my management company, but... <laughs> The solo tours are really fun. They're simple. They're very inspirational. They're more intimate, so I get better feedback from people. You know, those six hours in the car each day, five hours, four hours, whatever it is from place to place is really productive thinking time for me because I'm, you know, sort of thinking about what people thought the night before, the songs that mean things to them. The solo stuff is really good for getting me thinking about what's next. It might seem counterintuitive because I'm going way back in the catalog and I'm playing new stuff. You know, just getting validation or reactions from people really is helpful at this point in my life. What is the work saying to people? What does it all mean once it leaves my head and hands?
0: Well, so just in a business question, it was why a three-song EP, if clearly you're doing whole solo shows... I'm sure this could have been a 10 song or what you know or a complete career retrospective visit or something but instead we have you know two songs that were on the last album and then Divide and Conquer a classic Husker song done much slower than anybody's ever heard it.
1: These were recorded originally for World Cafe. And the idea with highlighting these three songs now was just sort of a thanks to the fans. It wasn't meant to be a buy this. You know, it's, it's a digital only release of some stuff that I think went under everybody's radar. A way to remind people that a tour is coming up and, you know, thanks for your support. Here's three songs that you can add to your playlist for whatever streaming service and off we go. You know, as far as like retrospectives, I mean, the distortion box set really covered a lot of bases with that. I mean, you know, 24 C D box set and four different vinyl box editions, you know, of different eras. I mean, I'm, man, that's like that's pretty some deep nostalgia there. But as far as like, you know, recording like a whole, you know, album's worth of acoustic stuff, maybe someday, but that wasn't the intention here. It was just sort of a these are a you know, three freebies and, and thank you. And here's a cool version of the ocean that I recorded at home. So,
0: And that's a wonderful introduction to the ocean that you recorded at home. So here it is. Thanks so much for doing this, Bob. It's, uh, not too many of my guests, I can say. Were we on video, I would show you my giant stack of uh, <laughs> products. <laughs> Very cool. Thanks so much.
3: the sky to the ocean Carousel With millions of lights and sounds You said I might not be there To prevent this in the future Don't here. You don't need to witness inevitable dance My skin is like dirt, I keep scratching at nothing Can't make it hurt enough Losing all feelings, senses are breathing really me now Crashed out, the currents are taking me further out to sea
0: Thanks so much to Bob, definitely a bucket list interview for me, and he was very gracious about my uh, fawning fandom, so I think we both got out of it unscathed. You can find out more about him at bobmold.com, Mold being M-O-U-L-D, I pronounced it Bob Mould, well, until preparing for this interview, my entire being a fan of him, which makes me also think about Rick Ocasek whose name is actually Okasic. But he doesn't care how you pronounce it. But now he's dead, so you really should pronounce it right. My next interview, already recorded, is with Ben Vaughn, a very good songwriter with a sort of retro 60s thing. He's a one-man band. He's done lots of TV soundtracks. And like Bob, a very good conversationalist. So come back for that. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed. You can find the many links to do that at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And of course, if you want to avoid my ad reads and get my notes on the episode and my eternal gratitude, I would love your per episode support. Could be for a very small amount at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. Folks, they're only charged when I actually release an episode. You sometimes get the episodes early. There's occasionally bonus material. It's like a party in your computer where I promise not to talk about showering at all. I hope you're doing well musically and otherwise. I have had some activity. I released a couple of my 90s albums on Bandcamp. That's marklint.bandcamp.com. If you want to hear me in my heyday when I was still maybe trying to go pro- but that was long ago and podcasts keep me pretty busy now however i did drag my electric guitar and amp upstairs for the first time in a long time was jamming on that for quite a while in addition to my regular drumming routine all this will hopefully move me toward wanting to actually write and record a new song i have some fragments of things but nothing that i'm super happy with so that's where things are with me i hope that you can uh, keep on musicing until next time Mark Winsomeyer's signing off.